Welcome to the Anchor Church Podcast. Each week, we'll bring you the teaching from our central campus. We hope it's an encouragement to you. Thanks for listening. Okay, time's up. (laughs) Thanks for that nice, warm welcome. I, I feel welcome. I hope you feel welcome in this place. And if I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Susan. I get to be pastor of spiritual formation here at Anchor. It's a huge privilege to be able to be with you here this morning and to be able to serve in that role. We get to have a conversation. You guys looked back at when that first time was that you heard the name of Jesus. Maybe it was positive, maybe it was negative. We're going to look back this morning too as we launch this fourfold series and we're looking at who Jesus is in a variety of ways. So I'm gonna look back about 140-ish years. The year is about 1881, and there's a a husband, a father of five, a pastor by the name of A.B. Simpson. And he makes a very bold move. Because he's been this pastor for a couple of years at this very prestigious, well-to-do church in the heart of New York City, and without a job to look forward to, he turns in his resignation to his church board. Now, why would anyone do such a crazy thing? Well, for A.B. Simpson, you'll see that it was a matter of the heart. So the whole time he'd been pastoring in his day job, by night, he would go down to the docks in New York City, and by the boatload, immigrants were coming to America. And he would befriend them, and he would help provide for their needs, and he would share both with his words and with his deeds the love of Jesus with these poor Italians or Irish or people from all over the world who were coming into the docks. And over time, there were about 100-plus Italian poor immigrants who said yes to Jesus and put their faith and trust in him. And they were so excited and so grateful for the hope that they had in him that they wanted to go and worship at A.B. Simpson's church. Wouldn't we celebrate that? That's such good news. Woohoo! We love that. But you know what happened was that was actually where the problem lay. Because this was a church that was well-dressed. And it was well-to-do. And the sad thing is, is that the church board decided, no, that's really, it really is uncomfortable for us to have these not-so-well-dressed folks in the room with us. It doesn't fit our style. And so A.B. Simpson had a crisis of the heart, didn't he? And that heart that had been shaped by walking with Jesus for years and by prayer and by challenges and by victories and by trust and faith in him made that bold move. And over a period of the next century and a half, what would happen with A.B. Simpson is his faith would birth a movement, a movement that we would call the Christian and Missionary Alliance, where men and women both would be equipped and sent into their communities and into, into different continents to bring the tangible good news that there's a God in heaven who loves them and put skin on and moved into the neighborhood. And the cool thing even about that is that that legacy would translate to a young pastor who lived in Ellensburg, who with his family would move to Tacoma to begin a church called Anchor, where we can gather on a Sunday morning and we can find freedom from our addictions and we can find love where we thought we didn't have hope. And that's why we get to be in this room today is because the faith-filled words of A.B. Simpson who would say it's all about Jesus. Simpson loved to write about Jesus and he centered on these four 
aspects of who Jesus was as savior, as sanctifier, as healer, as coming king that we get to press into in this fourfold series. We're gonna start with who Jesus is as our savior and what this salvation is that he offers to us. And here's two ways that you might find your heart posture uh, kind of sitting with this. I think that in a conversation like this, two things can happen. I think one is that it can be something that really puts us on guard. I don't like the word of salvation. I don't like the word of savior. You might be saying to yourself, I get it. Like I grew up in the 70s in the Bible build. I, I still got bruises from the Bible thumping. The other thing that might happen though is that you might have followed Jesus for a long time and right now you may be going, oh, this is one of those basics. You know, this is Jesus 101, and by the way, I've been in Jesus grad school for quite some time now. I'm just going to pray over us, Lord, Spirit of God, would you move in this place this morning? Would you open our ears and our eyes to the words that you have for us, not my words, Susan, but your words? We invite you to change our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to be in John 3. We're going to read a huge chunk of it. Will you get out your Bibles or your Bible apps? Will you get out your pencils? Will you be able to highlight? There are things in here that I think are important for us to see. Some will be very familiar. I'll start with verse 1 and we'll go through verse 21. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I have that underlined. Underline that. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born again when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised by my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You see it, you hear its sound. You can't tell where it's coming from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked, you are Israel's teacher. He's saying literally in the original language, you are the teacher of Israel, the teacher of Israel. Of, and, and Jesus says, you don't understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we've seen, but still you people don't accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of early earthly things and you don't believe, then how will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they haven't believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict that light has come into the world, 
But people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. So much there. We're going to unpack it. Jesus has been doing miracles. He's been gathering disciples. People are taking interest in him. He's certainly had a busy day. I'm certain that people have been lining up to be healed by him from emotional, physical, spiritual wounds and hurts. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's a conservative religious dude, and he's, he's the teacher of Israel. And he is so intrigued with Jesus. And I bet that he kind of would maybe consider going to him by day, but he comes by night. Like, what is with that Nicodemus? What are you afraid of? Are you afraid somebody's going to see you and associate you with this rogue, uneducated young teacher who's rocking the world around him? What is he afraid of? Maybe he's afraid he'll lose his standing. We worry about our status, don't we? We wonder what other people will think. Or maybe it's more personal for Nicodemus. You know, if you think about it, it's hard to lock eyes with Jesus. We get that, don't we? Maybe he'll do something or say something that unravels what we base our life on. Maybe he'll ask us something that, that causes us to, to think about the very core of who we are. We get it, Nicodemus. In fact, the truth is that in many ways we are like Nicodemus. We're the same. We don't like those situations where we feel one down, where maybe our shame is just right underneath the surface and we're afraid somebody's going to find it out. We feel like we should be something that we're not or that we are something that we shouldn't be. Or as my favorite counselor says, we should all over ourselves trying to avoid those situations. I love that. I love Nicodemus. Nicodemus does a bold thing. He musters up his courage. And here's what I love is even though it costs him and even though he's taking a risk, he goes directly to Jesus. We can learn from Nicodemus. When we have a question for Jesus, we can go directly to him. I hope that you'll invite us along for that journey with you. Jesus, in classic form, sees beyond our words and our questions. He sees beyond our doubt, and he gets straight to the heart of what we don't even know that we're wondering. And this is what it is for Nicodemus. Jesus, who are you? And can you show me the way to life? Do you have the way to life? They are talking about salvation they're talking about the way to life, not just life where you're breathing and going through the motions, but life that's rich and real and full. Not life on our screens, but life as it was meant to be. So Jesus begins to tell Nicodemus the truth in this intimate moment. He leans in, he locks eyes with Nicodemus. He's gentle, he's authoritative. He's telling the truth, truly, truly, I want you to know it doesn't work the way you think. You need to listen to the way that it actually is. You think that this is a new plan. It's always been planned this way. And in fact, it's my very life's purpose. Jesus is kind. He's gentle. 
We sympathize with salvation feeling like a baggage kind of thing, right? Savior, like what is that? Savior complex, isn't that a mental health diagnosis? You know, if we're Westerners, we're like, no way. Like I'm too self-sufficient for that, right? Or if we're Easterners, we're like, please don't show any sort of cracks in my life because then I'll bring dishonor to myself and to my family. Salvation is for others, right? It's not for us, we're not that broken. Can't Jesus see that we're not that broken? We love to have our self-care strategies that make us feel good in the moment, but they don't lead to life. So we're gonna unpack what this conversation is about salvation. What actually is meant by salvation in this conversation between these two? When we look at the generic sense of salvation, it's just like, hey, avoid harm and ruin and loss, right? We do that in tons of ways. We do that physically, right? We go to the gym. We wear a helmet when we skateboard, <clears throat> unless our name is Brian Halfordy, and I'm on him all the time about that, <laughs> right? We will look for emotional salvation. We've got, our, we've got our best buds. We've got our Instagram account. We've got our counselor. Did you know that America is spending hundreds of dollars on average every month for counseling? It's a good thing, right? And it keeps us from diving into those darker places that we go when we can't find that help emotionally. We looked for social salvation. We don't want to be isolated. Yeah, we need our hairdresser. We need our friends. We need the people around us. We need our cats and our dogs, right? <laughs> the pet industry, you heard it here first, is forecast to triple in its income over the next eight years. So go and do your investing and then thank me later, right? Um, financial salvation. We look for financial salvation in our jobs, in the economy. We get stressed. The American Psychological Association would say that Americans are currently more stressed about finances than they have ever been in history. Remarkable. We seek for those things. We're all looking for salvation. But zoom out and we look at world religions for millennia who've asked that question of like, what does it mean at a deeper level? And with great respect, I want to dive into some of those world religions. Let's look at Islam. Islam would say that life is a test, that pleasure is for later, and that at the end of your life, if your good deeds outweigh your bad, on a good day, Allah might let you into paradise. We look at Hinduism, we look at Buddhism in this never-ending cycle of life and death that you can only escape if you have virtuous deeds and if you finally get rid of desire, like good luck with that. We look at Jews like Nicodemus, even still today, who are working to, to please Yahweh and their devotion is so admirable through their fasting and their holidays and their rituals and rules. But the bummer is, is that none of these take it off of our shoulders. It makes it all depend on us, right? And even on a good day, the Jews, it's a national salvation. It's not a personal salvation. It's not a guarantee and it's not personal. Well, scripture, friends, has something to say about what salvation is. And we're going to look at that together. We're going to zoom in on the central verse that popped out to you as we read this. And I'm going to read it out loud. It's John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Shall not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave. So we look at this and we see such rich good things. We see that God loved the world. 
that salvation is rooted in God's love. And we cannot fathom that, friends. Right now, as you think about like, yeah, God loves me. I know, I've heard it forever. God loves me. But to lock eyes with him and to see and experience his sheer delight in you, friends, we need to spend more time in that mindset. The thing that it makes me think of is hanging out with anchor moms. I see some of you out there who have like four and five month old babies and we'll be in a conversation with mom and without the mom even paying attention, this baby is like looking at her like, I love that woman so much. I just adore her. I'm in love with her. And that is the love of the father for you multiplied a gazillion fold. We can't earn that. Now, so parents, I'm, I know you're earning it because you're staying up late at night and you got, you know, the gazillion things going on, right? But we can't earn it. And it's unconditional. That's God's love for us. God's love for us is so generous that he gave his one and only precious son to the world so that we could get an idea of who he is. He gave Jesus to the world. He came as an infant. He grew up with flesh on but God had costly love too. He also sent Jesus to the cross. And we, we, sometimes we struggle with that, the costly love of God. Our sin is expensive. And God had that kind of committed love. We struggle with that reality here. Like, why did Jesus have to go to the cross? Like, couldn't God figure out a different way? Please ask those questions. We welcome those here. We, we love being that place. We want to walk with you through that. Because the truth is that the Spirit of God will teach you through conversations and through his written word and through things that will happen as you seek him on those things that you'll notice and your minds will be open we find it here in the words of scripture, John 10, 18 answers that question. No one takes my life from me, Jesus says. I lay it down of my own accord. I have that authority. God gave it to me. Don't hesitate to ask those questions, but what we see is that God gives us grace, undeserved favor, and that grace is found through believing in Jesus Christ. So the second thing is that salvation is centered on Jesus we see he's begotten. Doesn't mean that God had an epidural and bore Jesus that way. No, it means one and only. It means unique in kind. It means one of a class. One and only son. This highlights Jesus' unique status as God's son. He invites us to be sons and daughters, but he is the son. He is unique and special. There's no other name under heaven given among humans by which we must be saved, Acts 4 says. Jesus didn't let that go to his head, though, did he? No, Philippians 2 tells us that he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. But instead, he, he gave up everything. He made himself nothing, and he went obediently to the cross for you and me. Jesus was divine. He was fully God. He was human, but he was without sin. Only he, only he, could take our sin on himself on the cross and make us stand righteous before a holy God who made a way for us. Only he. The gift of salvation is not a reward for our efforts. It comes when we look on him and we recognize his gift to us. So how do we receive the gift? We need to know the Savior. We need to know him. And, and in the one hand, that's great news because Anyone can come, 
right? Whoever, whoever the passage says, salvation is inclusive and we love that so much. We love that Jesus went to the parties and he hung out in the bars and he he just connected with every kind of people and he broke all kinds of molds in that way. The door to salvation is flung open wide, Jesus says. Come on in. Nicodemus might struggle with whoever because, by the way, for thousands of years, the Jews had been Jesus's chosen, God's chosen people. This was new for him. Sometimes it's new for us. Sometimes if people don't look like we do, they don't live in our corner of the world, they don't have the lifestyles that we embrace, we say, mm, first clean up your act and then come through the door. That's not what Jesus is saying. We don't want to miss what's happening in this moment. Jesus is beginning a conversation with Nicodemus that shows that the breadth and the expense and the expanse of God's love extends to everyone. There is not one person who's disqualified. All he says is, look to me. We want to change that that whoever to a qualified whoever. And Jesus says, no, your salvation is not your ideology. It's not your past. It's not your ancestry or your heritage. It's looking on me. But there is a qualifier, isn't there? All you Bible students out there are seeing that next word, believes. Whoever believes. And that becomes exclusive, doesn't it? We're like, what is that about? Is this fine print? And we say, no, it's actually in the same size font as the rest of that passage right in your Bible. But God has always wanted us to know this. He went to great lengths to explain it from the very beginning in Genesis all the way through Revelation. This is how it is. I want you to know. I want you to be sure to know. And he says it over and over again. He woos us through creation. He sets up circumstances in our life that bring us to the end of ourselves so that we'll finally pay attention to what he's trying to say. Do you see the pain and the suffering in your life that way? Sometimes we get mad about that, but actually he's wooing us. We can choose to love the darkness. God doesn't force this on us. Verses 19 and 20 tell us that, but oh, how he wants you to say yes to Jesus. God allows pain for a moment so that we choose life for eternity. So if you're struggling, ask God to show you what's behind that struggling. It's not always that, but it is sometimes. Here's what we can say when we, when we wrestle with the exclusivity of salvation for those who believe. We can say that Jesus is, is God's gift, that God didn't send his son to condemn the world, verse 17, but to save it through him. He's not coming with a heart of condemnation. He's coming with a heart to save. Let's not forget that. And God is still pursuing you and me in this room today. He's still pursuing miraculously. Even people far away who've never heard Jesus' name, he's giving them dream. He's giving them vision. He's showing them miracles of who he is so that they'll be wooed to him. He's also looking to you and me to be his hands and feet and voice, right? Maybe we're the ones who are going to say that name to them for the very first time. The truth is that salvation is available for everyone, for anyone, for whoever. Our job is to believe What does it look like to experience that salvation? Well, Jesus says it's worse than you think, but better than you could imagine. It's worse than you think. We have a poor prognosis. We're dying. 
we're perishing. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, verse 14, so the son of man must be lifted up. He's referring back to Numbers 21 when the Moses and the Israelites were wandering in the desert and they were so stubborn and God was tired of their complaining and wanted to correct them and discipline and show them the way. And so he sent poisonous snakes, go figure, and many of them died. And when they, they cried out to Moses, Moses prayed for them and, and God told Moses, put a, put a bronze snake up on a pole and allow the people who've been bitten to look at it. And if anyone who's been bitten looks at it, they will live. He didn't make them look at it. He let them look at it and they would live. He gave them that choice to choose life. In the same way, Jesus says, the son of man will be lifted up, but this time on a cross, God made a way. And as Jesus would hang on the cross, we can look to him. We can believe in him. We can choose to do that and we'll have life. Jesus says, you're dying. There are snakes everywhere. You get in your car, there's snakes. You open the kitchen cabinet, there's snakes. The refrigerator, there they are. You tuck your child in to bed at night and there are snakes. Look to me, look to me. Sometimes it's hard for us to hear that wake up call from God. We're resistant to it. We don't wanna consider we're not that broken, right? My mom and my brother um, had kind of a wake up call a few years ago. Um, wee hours of the morning, there was crackling going on. And it grew a little bit louder. And unbeknownst to my mom and my brother, David sleeping in his bed, um, there was a fire that was growing just on the other side of the drywall from him. And finally, the crackling grew loud enough that he could see through a tiny pinhole in the drywall that there was this orange glow. And so quickly woke up, the house is on fire! And went downstairs and my mom in classic form was already unloading the dishwasher. <laughs> That's what moms do. And he came downstairs and he said, mom, the house is on fire. And she said, the house is on fire. And then not too much later, a neighbor knocks on the door until they finally answer. They say, your house is on fire. Like the house 